Let's take your scriptures and let's open up to the book of 2 Kings. For this fall season, we've been in the Elijah-Elisha narratives, and today we come to the last one. Now, there's many more narratives that we could have been in, but um, for the timeliness of the season we're in, um, we'll come to 2 Kings chapter 13 today. And unlike the other narratives where we've been like in an entire chapter or so, today we're in two verses. And then we will reflect back on where we've been these past few months. This is God's Word. And if 2 Kings chapter 13, please join me in verses 20 and 21. So Elisha died and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. This is God's Word, our reflection for this day. Thanksgiving has been good, and I hope that you had time to reflect upon the Lord's goodness this week. And whether it was a small gathering with yourself, or whether you traveled and came back, family or friends, I do pray that out of this present grind, you were able to pause, and even as I was speaking with someone on a Zoom call before this, listen to the silence. Learn to listen to the silence so you can Remember again the Lord's goodness and His faithfulness even in such a year. When we reflect upon the past, it gives us faith for the present, perspective for the present. And so we should always be considering the past. We press forward to the work that the Lord's given us before us, but it is good to pause, not to have vain regrets and just be paralyzed, but it is good to reflect and learn from the past. And are you ones who enjoy the study of history? Do you enjoy history? i got my friend who's a history buff. Mr. Jim keeps me sharp in history. Miss Tabby's a history teacher. Um, Do you like history? Why study history? This has all happened and it will all happen again. At least the phrase of the slogan went in Battlestar Galactica. This has all happened, and it will happen again. I get to the end of this series, and it's like, we're just going to do an eternal recurrence of just what happened. And this is rooted in a Buddhist or Hindu worldview of just reincarnation of an eternal recurrence. Is history just repeating itself? Is it just a cycle in eternal recurrence? And I would say, no, it is not a a cycle of just reincarnation and just trying to get up the ladder the next time around it is a progressive chronology from start to finish it's a march of time but we do observe repeated patterns in history the common phrase those who do not know history are doomed to repeat it so Vizino, the bald kidnapper in princess bride 
says, never get involved in a land war in Asia. Or at least get out of Russia before winter. And a repeated pattern, even though it wasn't a recurrence, a repeated pattern was that Napoleon didn't learn that lesson in 1812. And Hitler repeated that in 1941. Studying the past helps us understand the present. But what happens when history is revised? Who controls the past controls the future. And who controls the present controls the past. That's the party slogan of Orwell's 1984. So who controls the past controls the future, but who controls the present controls the past. History can be rewritten and revised. So why study the history of the Bible? A generation goes and a generation comes. Ecclesiastes tells us what has been and will be and what has been done is what will be done and there is nothing new under the sun. And so we have come to the Bible and it's not merely a history book. It's God's inspired Word. These are the words of God through men. They are the revelation of God, but they are working in history. The Bible reveals the progressive chronology of the march of time. From creation to new creation. From beginning to end unto life without end. And what bifurcates this history? is the advent of the Messiah, the coming of God in the flesh, the revelation of Jesus Christ our Lord. And so why would Creator God, who's existed eternally outside of time and space, who then creates time and space and matter, step into that and all of its limitations, even to the frailty of our flesh? The Bible reveals the repeated patterns of human nature. The first humans disobeyed God, and so now we all sin against God. We are sinful by birth in our nature. And we deserve God's judgment. And how are you going to escape God's judgment? We cannot be good enough for how good would be good enough. We can only be saved by God's rich mercy and Jesus is God in the flesh come to save us, to be judged for our sin, and so satisfy God's justice. And so this is good news of great joy, not just to shepherds in a field, but through all the ages and the march of time, even to the ends of the earth, that Jesus came to be with us and to die for us, to be resurrected from the dead, and to one day make all things new. And so that is our blessed hope that we're waiting for. But until that day, we live in these evil days in the repeated patterns of human nature in the progressive chronology of time. And so we come to the history of the Bible. And for these past months, we've been in the history of the Elijah-Elisha narratives. We're studying this history not just to learn more Bible facts, but to know God to then know how do we live in this portion of history, these numbered days that are given to us. Studying the past helps us to have faith in the present and also hope for the future. 
Now, I realize some of you have not been with us these months, and some of you may this be your first time to City Light, but I do want to circle back and walk through this history and consider what has the Lord taught us and what is He teaching us for these days. We've been in the Elijah Elisha narratives of First and Second Kings. This is a time in which Israel is now a divided kingdom. Israel had been a united monarchy with Saul and David and Solomon, but then sin abounds and they divide into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The ten tribes are, make up the, the northern, northern um, kingdom and the two tribes make up the southern kingdom of Judah. Judah had kings here in the south. A few were good. A lot were bad. Not just to overgeneralize, but in the north, Israel, they all did evil in the sight of the Lord. 1 Kings 16, King Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So when we think of progress and the myth of progress, we're on a progressive march here, but the myth of progress is saying that it's always better than it was before. That's a lie. We're not getting better. We're getting new toys, new luxuries, new conveniences, but we still have the same human heart. And so there, King Ahab became more evil than all the kings before him. And so what does God do? God sent prophets to speak the word of the Lord, to confront the evil, and to call God's people back to faithfulness. I do not think we have prophets today in that sense of an office. We're kind of already built on this foundation of the, office, of the prophets and the apostles. But I do believe prophetic ministry continues on. And that, that mantle is upon us all, church. The mantle of prophetic ministry is upon us all to all speak the word of the Lord, to all confront evil, to call each other back to covenant faithfulness and to call us to faith in God. You don't need to be dressed like John the Baptist in a garment of camels here, leather belt, but we do need to know our Bible. And so for this fall season, as we've gone through the Elijah-Elisha narratives, what has most spurred you to faith, to witness? Do you remember how we began Elijah was a prophet in the 9th century. So in the 9th century B.C., before Christ, that bifurcation, this is the 800s, the 9th century B.C. Elijah comes on the scene, confronts King Ahab, and declares a drought on the land. It's not going to rain until he prays again. That ends up being three and a half years. Elijah then scurries off and goes to a brook and is fed by birds, by ravens. He drinks water and then is given food delivery by ravens. The brook dries up because there's no rain. So then he is sent by God to a widow in Zarephath, a Gentile woman. She was of meager means, and yet he performed a miracle so that her flour and her oil continually multiplied. What blessing, except that her son died. This widow with her only son died, and yet then Elijah raised him from the dead. 
So our lesson here is do you remember that God is doing more than we realize? On a national, global scale there, here in this region, he was, had a famine because of a drought. God is judging the nation. But God is also in the details of this widow's life. God is taking care of the big things and involved in the small things at the very same time. Judgment upon people, but also care for individuals. He was there even caring for prophets that were being hidden away by Obadiah. So how is, you think there's so much happening in the world today. The world is shaking. Geopolitical, all this stuff. Yes, God is working on this grand scale, but he's also in the details of your life in these days. Three and a half years later, Elijah comes back on the scene, confronts Ahab and says, let's do a contest here on Mount Carmel. I challenge your prophets, the prophets of Baal, and you can call out, I'll call out, whichever God answers by fire, that's the true God. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? 1 Kings 18. So let's see who the real God is. And so for the entire day, these prophets of Baal, this false god, just thrashed about, danced about, trying to get this god to answer. Supposedly a storm god couldn't, couldn't send just a quick lightning bolt to light up this sacrifice on Mount Carmel. They start cutting themselves, thrashing, and Elijah mocked them. And then later in the day, he said, just pour water all over my sacrifice, just douse it. And then he just prayed a simple prayer. God, show yourself, glorify yourself. And fire consumed this sacrifice. The Lord, the Lord alone, the God of Israel, He alone is God. He alone is to be worshipped. But church, how long will we go limping between two different opinions? We can't worship God and worship the world. We can't think we can do both at the same time. Israel never forsake the Lord. They just always tried to have the Lord and the false religions. The Lord and the pagan culture. Church, how long do we think we can juggle both? Jezebel, this foreign woman who King Ahab had married, domineering, manipulative, she introduced idolatry and more immorality, she got hot, threatened Elijah's life. And even though he had great boldness there at Carmel, he fled for his life and ran and ran and ran to the south. Witchcraft, spiritual, sexual debauchery, the silencing of the prophetic voice. This is the Jezebel spirit into Israel and even here in our day. So Elijah goes and despairs under a broom tree in the wilderness, just wished he'd never been born. Just take my life, Lord, I'm done. And just exhausted, and the Lord cares for him, lets him sleep, sends an angel to care for him. He wakes up to cake. My translation says he woke up to a cake, got touched by an angel, ate cake, went back to sleep, woke up, and there was another cake. Angel touched him, the ministry of touch, and he went on, and the Lord beckoned him to Mount Horeb, to Mount Sinai the very mountain that Moses had met the Lord on. 
The Lord does not speak to him in the windstorm or the earthquake or the fire, but in a low whisper. And Elijah, who's just weary and worn, but refreshed from the Lord, is called back to his calling, his prophetic calling, even to go call a successor, Elisha. So are you despairing of soul in the evil of these days? I too often kind of almost live what I preach. And you guys know that I've been under the broom tree a bit in this time. But God comes to us in our weakness. God calls us to himself. God cares for us in our need. And then he picks us up and gets us back in the game, commissions us to what he's called us to. King Ahab is king. He wants to expand his property. He has an adjoining property that he wants to make a, into a vegetable garden. But that, the man who owns that, who's inherited it for him, his forefather, says, no, king, I can't disobey the Lord, Naboth. I can't disobey the Lord because this is an inheritance from my forefathers. King Ahab sulks, but Queen Jezebel just devises a plan to accuse him of a false charge and have him murdered, have him executed on false charges. And there was no one else who stood up in that town for Naboth. No one else who stood up for the Lord. They just let this evil go rampant. And so those who stand for God will sometimes stand alone for God. They'll sometimes, they will sometimes suffer for God's sake. Naboth was not delivered, but yet he received a greater inheritance and the world was not worthy of him. So we read that story, and I hope you didn't feel pity for Naboth. Oh, look at this poor man. He lost his life. No, he stood in faith before the evil of his day, and he gave of his life even in the face of it. And what will the Lord have you stand for? You don't even know what that conversation, that time will come in your life. But by God's grace, will we have the grace to stand in those days? Elijah confronts Ahab, Abel. Ahab actually humbles himself this time at the word of the Lord. And so our sin is never greater than the Lord's mercy. Ahab and Jezebel had a son, Ahaziah, who took the throne. He fell out of a window. This is the only thing recorded in his life here in Kings. And he wanted to go see, am I going to survive this injury? He, make, he beckons to the false prophets. But while his messengers are going to the false prophets to inquire of the false god, Elijah intercepts them and says, why are you going to the false prophets? You're going to die. This man, King Ahaziah, sends several battalions of 50 men to try to seize Elijah, and Elijah calls down fire on the first two. The captain of the third humbles himself before the prophet. Have mercy. King Ahaziah, this man who lived a life here on earth, and yet the Bible records this one incident. The defining moments in our life are the ones in which we either receive or reject God's word. Our lives are filled up with so much, and yet that what matters is do we receive God's word or do we reject it? The last thing, last episode here in Elijah's life was there in 2 Kings 2. He went, he knew it was going to be his last day here on earth. And so he goes and visits companies of the prophets from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho. And along the way, he's got Elisha, who's now his assistant, his successor. And every well, he says, just stay here, Elisha. And Elisha says, no, no, I'm going to be with you. And he continues on to all these stops 
to meet with all these prophets. And Elisha persisting because everyone knew the Lord was going to take Elijah away that day. Finally, Elijah asked Elisha what he would like. And Elisha asked for a double portion of his spirit. Honestly, to receive an inheritance as a spiritual son onto prophetic ministry. Everyone knew that that was going to be Elijah's day. And he was taking up, not by death, but chariots of fire into heaven. You can wait for those chariots, but more than likely it will be by the stopping of our heart, the shutting down of our body systems. And when will that day be? When will be your last day here on earth? You celebrate a birthday, but you also know that there's a death day coming. And so we do not know when our last day will be, and so this should spur us on to how we live this day. And so we live our faith out in spiritual family. And do we cry out like Elisha, God, would you give us a greater portion of your spirit? Lord, we want more of your presence and your power in our life. Lord, make us more like Elijah. Lord, give us courage to confront evil. Lord, let us confront those who think they're powerful and give us compassion to minister to those of low position, to those in need. Lord, would you give, and this, is the, this has been my prayer, and it's working out my salvation, friends. And you get to be a part. Lord, give us a prophetic voice with a pastoral heart. Like, we've got to be able to speak the word of the Lord against the evil of the day. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we speak to the evil of the day against these worldviews and ideologies that would oppose themselves to the truth of God. But we do it in a compassionate pastoral heart for people, for the lost, for those that are hurting. Elijah spoke the word of the Lord, but even more so, he was known as a man of prayer. And the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. James 5 tells us, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. He prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Lord, make us a praying people. Lord, make us an Elisha generation. Just we want more of you. We want you to work through us in these days with a greater presence and power of your Holy Spirit than even last generation. Lord, have mercy and grant us revival even for these days, we pray. Elisha then carries the mantle into prophetic ministry. We don't get a lot of the the details of how Elijah discipled him. But Elisha did get a double portion, and actually there's a greater number of passages here too. The one, I can't preach it, I mentioned it, I could preach it, I could preach it real good, about when he's leaving the Jordan River and this band of youth come out of the woods, this mob of youth, and they start taunting him, like, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. And he curses them in the name of the Lord, and then two she-bears come out of the woods and maul 42 of them to death. It's just so crazy. Like, this is our Bible. This is history. Elisha would speak to the king of Israel concerning his military plans. Elisha would perform many miracles. He also would multiply oil. He would raise a, a, a woman's son. He would purify a deadly stew. He would heal a leper. 
Elisha has a home in Samaria, according to 2 Kings 6, but he's constantly moving about the land with access to both royal courts and peasant dwellings. So this is a curious pair. Elijah and Elisha, here, these, these representative prophets here unto the kings to call to confront evil and to call God's people back to faithfulness. But there's also a curious pair further back in the Old Testament, if you know our history there, of Moses and Joshua. And Moses was representative of the law. And Joshua succeeded him. And Joshua led the people into the promised land. Elijah is representative of the prophets, but now comes Elisha in greater power for these days of evil. So isn't it curious that the Lord is always working in these pairs of Moses and Joshua and then Elijah and Elisha? But I would point you forward to another pair. There would be prophetic silence for 400 years. But then comes this prophecy in the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord that comes. And so Israel's waiting like, well, he was taken up in a chariot of fire. Elijah's coming back. And so there's an expectation of the return of Elijah. But what we come to is a strange man by the Jordan River wearing a garment of camel's hair with a leather belt, the same description that's given of Elijah, and he's calling the people back to repentance. He's confronting the evil of his day and calling the people back to faithfulness. John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes in the spirit of Elijah. He is not Elijah, but he comes like Elijah as a voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord, confronting evil and calling people to faith to repentance. So here's my question. See, Moses is representative of the, the law, and then Joshua succeeds him. And Elijah is representative of the prophets, and Elijah succeeds him. And John the Baptist comes, and the spirit of Elijah who comes next? If Elijah is the forerunner of John, then of whom is Elisha a forerunner? Who comes after John in the power of the Spirit for ministry and miracles? Somebody whispered it. Who whispered that? Come on, speak up. Jesus, thank you. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. He's the greater Moses. He's the greater Elijah. He's the greater Joshua, Yeshua. And he's the greater Elisha. Consider the similarities of Elisha's ministry and Jesus's. Their names have similar meanings. Elisha means God is salvation, and Jesus means God will save. Both of their ministries start at the Jordan River. At the Jordan, Elisha sees Elijah taken up by heaven, by chariots of fire. Then he begins his ministry with a double portion of Elijah's spirit. But there at the Jordan River, Jesus is baptized by John. 
And then coming down from heaven is the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove to start his ministry. Both Elisha and Jesus raise a woman's adult son from the dead. Elisha raises the son of a Shunammite woman from the dead. Jesus raised the son of the widow of Nain from the dead. They both feed large numbers of people with a small quantity of food. We didn't get into this narrative, but Elisha fed a hundred men with a few barley loaves and there was food left over. Jesus on two different occasions fed the multitude, 4,000 plus, 5,000 plus, with a few loaves and fishes and there was food left over. They both take a small quantity of liquid and make it into an abundance. Elisha took the small amount of oil and it was enough to fill every vessel in the community. When Pastor Christian preached that a couple weeks ago, how many vessels you got? We just kept pouring it. Oh, but then we get to the wedding feast at Cana, John 2. We out of wine. Get those six large jars. Fill them with water. Six large jars of 20 to 30 gallons each. Choice wine at the miracle of our Lord. They both heal lepers. Elisha heals Naaman, the Syrian commander of leprosy. Jesus heals many lepers. They both make heavy things float. Go back and read that. There was an axe head, you know, like iron. Just, it sunk. And Elijah call, Elisha calls it to float. An iron axe. Jesus walks on water and enables Peter to do the same. They are both betrayed for the love of money. Elisha is betrayed by his servant Gehazi, who tracked down Naaman as an opportunity to make money. Jesus is betrayed by his disciple Judas because Judas saw an opportunity to make money. An opportunist. They both give sight to the blind. Elisha blinds his enemies, then restores their sight. And Jesus often restores sight to the blind. And there's one more striking similarity. We're here at this last one. In both of their deaths, they cause others to live. In both of their deaths, they cause new life. For more than 50 years, Elisha has been serving as the prophet of the Lord. He's been confronting evil. He's been calling people back to covenant faithfulness. And what does he have to show for five decades of ministry? You mean to tell you what the Bible says in this history? Five, more than 50 years of his life. And the kings continued to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The people continued to sin against the Lord. Idolatry and morality abounded. The army continued to be weak against foreign fighters. And Elisha died and they buried him. What are your thoughts about that? I've got some thoughts. When we get to Elisha's death, what have we progressed to in this progressive chronology in the march of time? I have some anger. Like, what are you doing, Lord? Where is the victory? 
I have some despair. Is there any hope for God's people, Lord? I know we're moving in a chronology here, but we just feel like we're on a loop. It's just the same old evil, the same old immorality, the same old idolatry. And this is the progress of myth. Even though we're cultures and civilizations are progressing and history is a march, progress is a myth. If we believe that the present is better than the past and the future will inevitably be better than the present, we are mistaken, at least in this age. Is the world really getting better? We have constant connectivity to the world. We're able to travel around the world. I mean, generations ago, what we're able to do travel-wise, just a few decades ago, and I mean, it's several decades now, but people walked on the moon? Yet this same technology now has constant surveillance of us. We have comforts and conveniences never imagined to generations past. So is the world really better than it was 50 years ago? And it's changed, and I think in some respects you can say, this is better, but in other things you can say, this is the same or worse. Was Israel any better than it was at the beginning of Elisha's five decades of ministry? History marches on, and so does human sin and evil. And see, what we need most is not just more miracles and not more military victories. What we need most is salvation. Elisha is dead and buried, but his ministry is not yet done. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen. And this man was just quickly just tossed into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. That cracks me. I mean, that's, could you imagine just being there? You chuck this corpse into this hole. And it hits those bones down there, and all of a sudden, the man stands up. Imagine. They're like trying to quickly, because there's a marauding band coming here, and they're the raiders themselves. And then all of a sudden, you just saw a miracle happen out of nowhere. According to the law, corpses were ceremonially unclean. So if you touched a dead body, you were unclean. But to touch Elisha's dead body... You became not only clean, but alive again. This miracle, one person says this, right? The miracle certainly says something about Elisha. It was almost as though the prophet had the grace of God in his very bones. According to one of the Jewish rabbis of the second century before Christ, his body prophesied when he was dead. And in his life, he did wonders so that in his death, his deeds were marvelous. Even in death, the prophet brought life. Do you believe that there is life after death? Some would read the Old Testament and say, well, no, no, no. That's a New Testament invention. That's just something that was part of progressive revelation that we, we figured out later on. 
that these Old Testament saints really didn't have a hope beyond the grave. Well, really, tell that to Abraham who took his son up Mount Moriah at the Lord's command to sacrifice his only son, the son of promise, as the Lord had promised. Genesis 22.5, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there to worship and we will come back to you again. Abraham was out to obey the Lord, but he considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He believed in life after death that God has the power over death. Job believed in life after death. Job even believed in resurrection. Chapter 19, for I know that my Redeemer lives. Come on, get Handel's Messiah out. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the very last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. That's Job. Tell David that there's no death after life. There's no life after death. Psalm 16, my flesh dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. And in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Abraham, Job, Moses, David, all died. But their souls are with the Lord, though their bodily remains are still here on earth. They were faithful saints, but they didn't see the long-expected Messiah, but they had hope in Him. Faith in Him. We needed someone greater to come and save us. A greater prophet, the eternal King, the promised Messiah, this is Christ the Lord. And if Jesus is the greater Elisha, how did Elisha even bring life to this dead corpse? In his death. Even in the death of the prophet, there's grace to bring life. How does Jesus bring life? In his death. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. What is the way of salvation? Is it just our progressive human culture that we will achieve utopia? That we will save ourselves? Come on. Are we any better than we were 50 years ago? In some respects, yes. In others, it's just the same repeated cycles of human nature in the march of history. How are we saved? History is bifurcated. The fullness of God coming to us and bodily dwelling full of grace and truth. God in the flesh living before us as someone we've never could have imagined. And yet someone so relatable. Like someone so holy and yet someone that's so approachable. This is Jesus of the Gospels, of history. And even though we see this and behold this and are captured by this, none of us can live up to this example. Because it's not just to show us an example that we're saved, it's to die for us. Because He lived the life that none of us have. 
a sinless life. This is how we're saved, through the death of our Savior. His death paid a debt for our sins so that we are forgiven and reconciled to God. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This changed history. This changes lives. But now what does that mean for us now in faith in this one? And what I would say is, if you have your Bible, go to 2 Corinthians 4. I could go to Galatians 2. But I want, how do we know life? We know life through the death of our Savior. Do you see, how does life come? It comes through death. So what is the call of knowing and following Jesus this day? Because what I will tell you is I think in the very nature we're born with, we are trying so hard to live. To survive, to succeed, to outdo others, to get what we think is due us, to be wise in our own eyes, to go in our own ways. And what does salvation mean for us? We die to ourselves. Do you really want to be a blessing to other people? Do you want your bones to be so full of grace that, you can, that the Lord would even use that as a means of grace to cause new life in others? Then what is it going to be? It's going to mean the death of ourselves. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Yet my flesh doesn't like that verse. Galatians 2.20 My flesh wants it just like Israel had it. We want the Lord God and we want what we want. That doesn't work. I can't go limping between those two opinions. Myself must die. So join me here in 2 Corinthians 4. Fly, bookmark this one for 2020. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Verse 7 to show that this surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed. We are perplexed but not driven to despair. We are persecuted but not forsaken. We are struck down but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. How did the Apostle Paul minister life to the church in Corinth? Death is at work in us, so that life may be for you. I don't, disciples who followed Jesus for weeks and years, I don't know where you are this day, but if you're discouraged and you feel beat down, perplexed, not. It's actually probably God's working in us to, ref, 
refine us so that we would die to ourselves, so that the life of Christ would, would be manifested in us. And He cares for us. He knows our needs. He's a good and loving Father. And He also picks us up and sends us back into the game to just say, you're going to die to yourself and this is how you will glorify Me. This is how you will show the world Jesus. Die to yourself. Some of you are asking, is Jesus real? Is He worthy to be followed? And I don't want to give you like a quick, like just believe this, say a prayer, and it'll all be good. I'm asking if you, if you're convinced Jesus is God in the flesh and He's risen from the dead, if you're convinced of that, then welcome. Profess faith in Him and come and die. That's the, that's the joy of being a disciple of Jesus is dying to ourselves because He died for us. And in dying to ourselves, He gets to be shown off in us. And in dying to ourselves, we pray that even in our bones, that there'd be grace that others would come to new life. Let's pray.